Good morning, students. It's another Sunday. I'm thankful that we get to gather together, although not present in uh, person. We get to gather together via technology to study God's Word and to learn all about the church. If you were with us last week, you know that we started a new series all throughout this fall semester. We'll be rethinking the church. What does it mean to be the church? Uh, what does the scripture say about who the church is and how the church ought to function? And, and what's the hope of the church for the future? Today, we're going to talk about uh, historical marks of the church. So how is it that throughout history, um, how has the church been defined? You know, last week we talked about biblical images, things like the temple of the Holy Spirit or the body of Christ or the family of God. But historically, if we think throughout the centuries of church history, uh, how has the church defined itself? What have they uh, come to define the church as through uh, specific marks or definitions? And that's what we want to talk about this morning. I think it's important for us to understand our history because if we don't know historically what the church has been defined as, we won't know how to define our church today. We won't know whether or not we're healthy or biblical or faithful to the tradition that we've received from hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years of faithful brothers and sisters living out their lives as a part of the body of Christ. So what are these marks of the church? There's so many different ways that we can talk about this. There's so many different uh, frameworks that we can discuss as we think about defining the church in historical ways. But I want to show us kind of two sets of marks, one from the early church that carries on throughout today, and, and one from the Reformation that really clarifies and helps us understand what it means to be a gospel-centered church. So if you're taking notes this morning, we'll be all over Scripture. I'll give you a bunch of different passages to look at. But this morning, what I want us to do is have this overview of these historical marks of the church. And if you're taking notes, there's really going to be two points, uh, and that is early church marks and Reformation marks. So early church marks and Reformation marks, those are your two points. We'll talk about more specifically, what, is, uh, what are those marks? Uh, but first, let's pray before we get started. Well, God in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace in our lives, and we thank you, God, for your word. It's through your word that we understand who you are and, and what you've done on our behalf, how you save us from sin, how you gather us together as the people of God. And Lord, we are so thankful for scripture, but we're also thankful for the history of tradition that we have before us generation after generation, this great cloud of witnesses who have been faithful to the end and now look on with great joy at us as we uh, live out our lives faithfully to you and to your word. So Lord, help us as we study uh, these historical marks of the church that we would understand what does it mean to be the church? How can we notice and recognize a true Bible-believing, gospel-centered church? And Lord, help us to be that kind of church that makes much of the gospel, that makes much of the unity of fellowship that we enjoy as the family of God. Help us, Lord, to do that. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so I said we'll only have two points this morning, but we'll, we'll flesh those points out pretty significantly, especially this first section. So if you're taking notes this morning, the first point will be the early church marks. The early church marks. Marks. There are four marks from the early church, and all four of them are extremely important. And even on through to today, we would say that our church embodies or hopes to embody these four marks. Now, before I tell you what they are, we need to understand that these four marks are kind of under the banner of what's called the already but not yet. 
You may have heard me talk about that before, use that phrase before already, not yet. So for, for example, uh, we know that as Christians, we are new creations in Christ, right? So, so you and I as Christians right now are new creations. That's what Corinthians tells us. That's what Galatians 2 tells us. That's what the scriptures tell us. However, we are not yet with the Lord in glory, right? We haven't uh, been glorified. We haven't been removed completely from our sinful tendencies, our sinful desires, the sinful world. And so there's a sense in which we are already new creations, but we are not yet fully new creations. Hopefully that makes sense that as the people of God, we live out our Christian life as, as people who are caught up between two different ages, the age that has come and the age that is to come, right? So the same is true for the, the church, that the church exists in this already but not yet sense. And so the marks of the church that are true for the church today are also something that we ought to strive for as the church for the future. These are things that we must constantly strive for in the gracious power of the Spirit. There's something that we have but it's also something we're aiming for as well. And it'll make sense as we get into the mark. So the first mark is that the church of Jesus Christ is one. The church is one. It is united. The church is together. The bond of the body of Christ is stronger than blood. It's stronger than skin color. It's stronger than gender. It's stronger than your favorite team. It's stronger than how much money you make or any other thing in this world. The church of Jesus Christ is one. If you have your Bibles, find John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry and he's praying to the Father in what we call the high priestly prayer. Look at verse 20. John 17, verse 20. This idea of unity or oneness is Jesus' prayer for the church. Look at John 17, verse 20. We'll read through verse 23. Jesus says, he's praying to the Father, and he says, I do not ask for these only, that is the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus' prayer for the apostles and those who would come to faith in Christ through their teaching is that they would all be one in Christ that they would find their unity in God. More than anything else in the world, they would become one through God. Listen to Ed Clowney. He says, Jesus Christ builds one church on the foundation of his apostolic witness. The unity of the new people of God is part of the good news proclaimed by Paul to the Gentiles. He's Israel's Messiah, the Savior of the world. By his cross... He broke down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. It is union with God that creates the unity of God's people. So you and I, as the people of God right now, can say that we are one. We are united by our faith in Jesus Christ, by our union with Him. 
And God has promised in Colossians chapter one that, that he is going to reconcile all things to himself, not just individuals, but all creation. But that work of reconciling all things is seen as a preview in the life of the church. So the world looks at the church and, and hopefully should see how God is reconciling all things together in unity. We are a colony of heaven. We are the first fruits of the new creation. Now, this was a noticeable reality in the early church. You don't have to turn there, but just let me read to you just one little verse from the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed, that is now the new church, they were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So the church historically, ever since the book of Acts, the birth of the church, has modeled and exercised this idea that we are one together. We are united in Christ. We have the, the privilege of being a part of the same family. And the oneness of the local church plays itself out not in just the possessions of Acts chapter 4, but in a lot of different ways. So think about, think about our own church and, and how this local congregation unites around specific things. For example, we unite around doctrine. So we're united on the teachings of the church. We all believe the same gospel. We put our hope in the same God. We, we trust the same scriptures, right? So we're united. We are one in doctrine. There are certainly things that we disagree on that are less important, but the most important things, the core truths about what does it mean to be a Christian, we are united. We are one. We're one in organization, right? So we're united on the structure of the church. If you're a part of Lakeview Baptist Church, then you believe that to be a member of this church means that you have been baptized as a believer, right? So the way that this church is structured by gathering together and living out our lives in this, in this family of God, we're saying we are one in our structure. We're one in our organization. We're also one in our mission, right? So as, as the Lakeview Baptist Church, we're united on the task of the church. And that's our purpose statement, right? To make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. That's, that's our mission. We've, we've, come, we've become one in that mission. And also we're one in relations. So we're united to the members of the church. So I can say in one sense that all Christians are my brothers and my sisters. And we'll get to that aspect of being the church a little bit later. But as it pertains to this local congregation, we are united in our relationships. I can look at you and say, you are my brother. You are my sister. I've made a, a covenant with you to be your brother and to love you and encourage you and challenge you. We are united together in the relationships that God has given us. Now, this is something that we have, right? This is something that we already possess. We are one in Christ as the church of Jesus Christ. But it's also something we must strive for in the power of the Spirit. Remember, I said all of these marks have this already but not yet sense. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is explaining and describing the wonderful news of the gospel and how it changes us from the inside out. Chapters four through six start to give them some, some ethical practices of how they ought to live out their life. And this is how 
This is how Paul begins this, this letter, the ethical section of the letter. Chapter four, starting in verse one. This is what he says. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Here it is, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Students, we are one church and we are united as that church. So if you're thinking about the the marks of the early church, the first one is that the church is one. We are united together by uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and by being members of his body. But second, we see that we are also holy. The church of Jesus Christ is holy. So we're one and holy. We have been set apart by the Spirit of God to be distinct from the world. We're no longer of the world. We may be in the world, but we're not of the world. We are holy because God is with us. Remember last week, we talked about how you and I are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells within us. And because he's made his dwelling place in us, we have been separated from the world. We are now distinct, set apart. We're holy to the Lord. Now, this holiness is true in one sense and a goal in the other. Remember, uh, all the marks have this already not yet flavor to them. So the church is holy definitively because it is made up of sinners who have been once for all saved by grace alone. So you and I as Christians have been justified by faith in Christ. He has given us his grace. He has made us righteous in the eyes of God. We now stand before the Lord and he has declared us holy. He's declared us righteous. So in one sense, all the people of God are holy because they have been declared holy in the eyes of God. The church, however, is also to grow, not just in its definitive holiness, but in its practical holiness as it puts sin to death, as it follows the Lord's commands, and as it becomes more and more like Jesus. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 really really gives us a good picture of this already, but not yet, as it relates to holiness. Let me just read it to you. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So let me just read that to you again. It's to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, right? So there's this definitiveness. There's this, you are sanctified, you are holy, but you have also been called to be holy, right? So you have holiness, but you ought to grow in holiness as well. John Owen, a Puritan theologian, wrote that holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospel in our souls. So students, you and I have been declared holy by God, but as we grow in our faith in Christ, as we grow in our understanding and trust in the gospel, as the gospel is written on our hearts and more clearly realized in our souls, 
we will be more holy. We'll be more holy. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 5. Told you we're going to be all over the place in the Bible because I want you to see that these marks aren't just something that somebody made up. They're something that we find in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25. Ephesians 5, 25. This is what Paul writes. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her. That is to make her holy having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Why? Why does he sanctify his bride? Why does he make her holy? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here we see the heart of Jesus for his bride. He wants to make her holy. He wants to wash her clean. He wants to make her perfect in every way. But but notice what's happening in this text. The church isn't making herself holy. Jesus is washing her with the water of the word. He is making her holy. God has to make the church holy. We cannot do it. Students, you and I know we cannot make ourselves more clean We can't make ourselves more holy. We can't sanctify ourselves. We need the cleansing power of the word as the church to grow in holiness. Like John Owen said, the more we get the gospel down into our souls, the more holy we will become. So that's why the church uses the means of grace. If you've been with us in the youth ministry for a while, you've heard that term before and you know that we have these means of grace, these disciplines and things that we do as Christians that help the gospel seep down into our bones. Things like preaching, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, fellowship, studying the word, and more. There there are more and more of those means of grace at your disposal and mine. But these rhythms of grace, these, these means of grace, they help the gospel get into our souls. They help us to become more holy. So the church is one, it's united by faith in Christ and it is holy. It's been set apart by God to be like Christ. Third, we think about the early marks of the church. We say that the church is Catholic. Now, as soon as I say that, you may start to be confused, right? Because we are not the Catholic church, right? Um, So when I'm using that word Catholic, I don't mean Roman Catholic, I mean what that word means. And that word Catholic means universal. It means universal. So the church is universal. It is global. There is no other church but this church. So that means the church is not, it's not confined to one specific people group or one geographic location. Students, if you are in Christ, if you're a believer then you are in the Catholic church. You are in the universal church that spreads all throughout space and time. So Paul and Peter and James and John are members of the same body of Christ, the same church as you. You are a member of that body, just like they were members and are members of that body. Now we studied this just a few weeks ago at length 
when we talked about how uh, those who have faith are the true sons of Abraham in Galatians, right? So it's not Jewish heritage or ethnicity that makes you a son of Abraham. It's not bloodline or ethnicity. It's faith in the promises of God that makes you a part of his family. Now we know this instinctively if we've been a part of Lakeview for any amount of time because it's a part of our DNA, right? Because we at Lakeview love the Great Commission, Matthew 18, 18 through 20, where Jesus tells us that we are to go and make disciples under his authority, where? Of all nations. We're to make disciples of all nations. So this gospel truth is not just for Jerusalem. It's not just for Judea or Samaria. It's to the ends of the earth. This gospel is not just for Auburn. It's not just for your grade. It's not just for your class. It's for the world. And to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ means that you are a part of the one body. The church is Catholic in that sense. So this is picked up by Paul in places like Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 5. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it really quickly. Colossians 1, verse 5 and 6. Paul says, um, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul is saying, hey, church in Colossae, I'm so thankful that, the, that your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints, uh, that you have that, it's encouraging to us. And that faith and that love also is happening all around the world as the gospel comes to bear fruit in the life of the church. So Colossian church, you are, you are so good. God bless you, but you are a part of something much bigger than just you. So the church is Catholic. It's universal. Now, while this is true in one sense, right? I mean, obviously we would say, well, I'm a part of the same church that Paul and Peter and James and John were a part of. That's, that's true. In one sense, we must confess that throughout history, we have tried to create barriers in the church in numerous ways. One extreme, extremely clear example is just from a couple of decades ago in America during the days of Jim Crow. There were churches for white people only. And there were people who would stand around the churches called color guard, who would find people who were not white, African-Americans who would try to come in and they would tell them to go to another place tell them to go to another church because this church is not for them. So we, as people who are still broken by sin, oftentimes try either directly or indirectly, explicitly or implicitly, we, we create barriers that deny the Catholicity of the church. There isn't a gospel for the Chinese that's different from the gospel for the British or the Africans or the South Americans or anyone else. There is one gospel, and those who trust in Jesus are part of his body, the one body of Christ. That's one thing of note for us as we think about Catholicity, the fact that we are a part of the universal church. This means that we should look at other gospel preaching churches in our community as part of the same team. Students, there are churches in our town that love the Bible, 
that love the gospel, that love the Great Commission, that want to make their, their church members holy and godly and faithful and on fire for the word of God and for his glory. They're on the same team as us. This is not a competition to see whose church can be the biggest or whose youth ministry can be the most uh, passionate or the most involved or the most influential. No, we should be thrilled when people come to faith at Auburn Community Church or Grace Heritage or Parkway or First Baptist Opelika or Covenant Presbyterian or Grace Auburn or Trinity United Methodist and on and on I could go. These, these churches that we know, students that you go to school with who are a part of another local congregation, they're on the same team. They want to make much of Jesus just like we want to make much of Jesus. And there might be secondary reasons why you and I would rather be a member here than a member there, but we can celebrate with them because they're a part of the same body. They're a part of the Catholic, the universal church. As soon as we have to work towards greater Catholicity with our brothers and sisters who are members of other churches. Jesus said that the world would know us by the love that we have for one another. And if all they see is competition, if all they see is critique, they won't see love. So we've been called as members of the Catholic church, members of the universal church to celebrate and to honor and to love and encourage the brothers and sisters that we have who are on the same team. All right, so that's one holy Catholic church. There's, there's one more early mark. If you're writing notes, that last mark, the fourth mark for the early church is that the church is apostolic. It's apostolic. The church of Jesus Christ is founded on the witness of the apostles. Now, Roman Catholics, so not Catholic Church like we've just been talking about, but the Roman Catholic Church and Protestants, which is what we would be, we're part of a Protestant church, a Protestant denomination. These two groups have a big difference in what apostolic means. So Roman Catholics would say that the church is apostolic because of what's called apostolic succession, all right? So they would say that Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, was the first bishop or leader of the church in Rome. And he became what's called now the Pope. So Peter was the first Pope. And from Peter, there has been this succession of leaders of the church. So on throughout history, they would say that there has been a succession of apostolic witness for the sake of the church. So they've followed him and served in that role since Peter on to today. Protestants, on the other hand, do not recognize the authority of the Pope. So you and I, we don't feel any kind of obligation to submit ourselves to the authority of Pope Francis in the Vatican. Instead, we believe the church is apostolic because it is founded on the preaching and the teaching of the apostles that we find in the New Testament. The New Testament is the foundation of the church. So in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tries to mention this. He says in, in verse 20, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the household of God, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone. So you and I, as the church, have been built on this foundation that was laid by the prophets and the apostles, those who spoke the message of God in the Old Testament 
and those who spoke the message of God in the New Testament. These two huge pillars of authority are the foundation on which we stand as the church. So the church is apostolic in the sense that what the church teaches has to be founded on the Word of God. So to deviate from the teachings of Scripture, if, if, if I got up and started to teach you things, or if, if any pastor at Lakeview started to get up and started to teach you things that were not founded in Scripture, they weren't true according to Scripture, then we would be deviating from the gospel. We would be deviating from the truth of Scripture. Christopher Morgan says it like this. He says, God's Word has supreme authority even over apostles like Paul. Indeed, the New Testament binds all teachers and preachers to receive, believe, guard, and pass on the truth of God. Now, way back in the early church in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost, it says in verse 41 that they, that is the new church, these new believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what was important. That's what united them together to make them that one church. It was the teaching of the apostles. So students, we know that this is true of the church, that in order to be a church of Jesus Christ, you should use the Bible. You should use the teachings of the apostles to spread the message of the gospel. But there's a sense in which we must also continue to work towards faithfulness to the word. Here's the confession that we all have to, use, we all have to admit. No church is perfectly aligned to Scripture. That, that church doesn't exist. We all have sinful desires and we all have broken minds and we all have misunderstandings about what the Bible says. None of us have perfect theology. None of us have perfect doctrine, much less perfect practice. There is no church that nails this 100%. And that's why we need constantly the power of the Spirit to transform our minds and our hearts. It's why we need one another to point out what, not what feels good, not to point us to, to what is entertaining. It's why we need one another, not to point us to what's influential or fun, but to what God has revealed. So students, if I'm pointing you to something that is not ultimately the truth, even if it's entertaining or fun or, or influential in the eyes of culture, if we talk about those kinds of things, but not Scripture, then we're failing our mission. We're failing this mark of what it means to be the church. So the church is one. It's holy. It's Catholic. It's apostolic. And those four marks still make sense for us today. They help us see that God has made His people genuinely new, but that the life of the church has not yet fully come. It's not perfect yet. One day, students, this is good news for us. This is the hope of the church. One day, we will be perfectly one, perfectly holy, perfectly Catholic, perfectly together, and perfectly submitted to the Word of God. The church however, throughout the, the centuries of church history would find itself in a state of sickness. It was unhealthy and corrupt. So by the time you and I get to the 16th century, the 1500s, there are going to be leaders who pop up, guys like Huldrych Zwingli and Martin Luther and John Calvin. And these men sought to reform the church. They were reading the Bible 
and they were looking at the Catholic church and saying, something is not adding up. They may say that they are one holy Catholic and apostolic, but we're missing something really important in this book, in this text of scripture. We're not aligned to what the Bible is teaching. So these reformers wanted to bring the church back to the New Testament and its teachings. They wanted to bring the church back to rightly place the word of God as the supreme authority, not as one authority beside the authority of the church. So these reformers developed three more marks that all churches need to be restored to health. So if the first point was the early marks of the church that were one holy Catholic and apostolic, the second point are these reformation marks. There are three of them. We'll go through these a lot more quickly. First, the the reformers said that a church has to have the right preaching of the word. So we as the church submit our lives to the Bible and God has seen fit to raise up pastors and teachers to preach the word to the congregation. So it's not just this apostolic church in the sense of the Catholic church saying there's this apostolic succession. No, we have to have the teachings of the apostles. We have to preach the word. At the core of that message, at the core of the Bible, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the point for this, Mark. If there is a church who is not preaching the gospel as we understand it, as we see it in the Bible, that you are saved by the work of Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If a church is not preaching the gospel, then they are, they are wandering away from actually being a church. They may be a group of morally good people, but in the eyes of Scripture, in the eyes of history, as far as preaching this, preaching this gospel message, they're, they're no longer a church. Reformers believed that the Roman Catholic Church had lost the gospel and it needed to be recovered. So they made it their aim to preach the whole counsel of God's word, making much of the gospel of the glory of God. And, and students, we hope to do the same that often you should hear from the lips of your pastors the gospel message. So one day, you may not be at Lakeview. You may go off to college somewhere, get married and move off somewhere. You may find a job and, and go somewhere else. If you go to a church where the gospel is not clear, if the Bible is not the ultimate authority, if the pastors and teachers aren't pointing often to the truth of Scripture, then it's probably a sign that you need to look for another church. That's probably not a church that you would want to invest your life in. More than entertainment or fun or even community. If the gospel is gone, so is the church. So so students, hear me on this. If you have something that's calling itself a church and it's, it's really awesome, and it's blowing up, and there's a lot of people going there, and it's, it's just this new thing. It's this thing that everybody is latching onto. It's, it's engaging. It's fun. The speaker is powerful. He's a fantastic communicator. It seems like a place where I can really find friendships and fellowship and community. It's a place where I'm hearing a lot of things that make me feel good and encourage me and help me get through the, the trials of my life. It's, it's a place that's really fun and engaging, but the gospel isn't there, but obedience to Scripture is not there, a commitment to to sound doctrine is not there. Students, don't, don't give up what is eternally important 
to what is temporally good. Don't give up these things for the sake of these things. One of these things makes a church a church. It's the gospel. It's the Bible. It's the right preaching of the word. That's the first Reformation mark. The second Reformation mark is the right administration or the right use of the sacraments. Now I'm using the term sacraments by design. Another word that you may have heard for that is the ordinances. But the sacraments during the Reformation were these seven events, these seven practices by the Roman Catholic Church that were means of justifying grace. Okay, so let's, let's think about this for a minute. You and I believe that by faith in Jesus, we stand justified before God. Once and for all, it's done. The Roman Catholic Church would say that, that your justification, your right standing before God is through the work of Jesus, but it's given to you through these sacraments, through these events, through these, these works. Things like baptism, the Lord's Supper, uh, marriage, holy orders if you become a priest, things like these. And these were like medicine. So you needed to keep doing these things in order to maintain your justification, in order to maintain your right standing before God. So if you lose, the, if you don't go to the, 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 the Mass and you don't receive the Lord's Supper, then your justification may be in question. If you never get married and you never... Uh, commit to the priesthood, then your justification may be in question. If you don't go to confession and receive the, the penance that you need to do in order to be saved from your sins, then your justification may be in question. So these sacraments took sick people and made them better, like medicine. But if you missed them, you, you wouldn't be healed. So the Roman Catholics tied justification the right standing before God to these sacraments. Now, the Protestant reformers rightly recovered the biblical view that these sacraments are means of grace given to the church by Jesus, but there are only two. There's not seven. The only two sacraments that Christ has given to his church is the sacrament of baptism, right? Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the Lord's Supper, right? Do this uh, in remembrance of me, Jesus says at the Last Supper. So these are not acts that give us justifying grace, that make us right before God. No, the the Protestants believe and we believe that the, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are symbolic acts that give us sanctifying grace. They remind us of what God has done for us Right? In baptism, we're reminded that we have died with Christ and have risen with Him in His resurrection. In the Lord's Supper, we remember that the Lord died in our place, that He shed His blood for us, that His body was broken for you and for me. And in, through those sacraments, through those practices, the Spirit of God comforts us, encourages us, sanctifies us because He's, he's allowing the gospel, just like we talked about earlier, The gospel is seeping more deeply into our souls. So a church that does not practice the sacraments, a church that doesn't baptize anyone, or a church that never practices the Lord's Supper, 
or a church that does these things in a way that obscures the gospel, like the Roman Catholic Church. They've deviated from being a church. So if you're thinking about the Reformation marks, we have the, the right preaching of the word and the right administration of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Last but not least, we have the right exercise of discipline. The third Reformation mark, the last mark, is the right exercise of discipline. So the church of Jesus Christ must rightly exercise discipline. Now, usually this is tied very closely with sacraments, but a church will want to hold its members accountable to the word of God. So unrepentant sin in the life of the church cannot be tolerated. It is not right for the body of Christ to have known unrepentant sin in its midst and allow it to continue just with ignorance. I mean, you think about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is what Paul gets at. He says, there's a person in your midst that is committing sin not even the pagans would allow. Remove him from your body. Remove him from the church. Cast him out so that he might repent. Or it's like Matthew 18, where we see this, this process of church discipline. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if not, take one or two others along with you that in every case, uh, evidence of two or three witnesses might be established. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If not, tell it to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. In that sense, let him be to you as not a member of your church anymore. Let him be to you as someone who is unrepentant. Now we'll spend more time on discipline uh, later on in the semester. We'll spend a whole Sunday on it. But for now, we just need to know that that Christ has given this charge to the church. And a church that fails to practice discipline, whether proactively, things like preaching and uh, faithful discipleship and encouragement and accountability, and reactive discipline, like the process of church discipline, which includes excommunication, taking someone off of the membership. If a church doesn't do those things, it's failing to uphold the command given by Christ to do these things. Students, we are the church. We are one, holy, Catholic, apostolic. We rightly proclaim the gospel. We observe the sacraments. We practice discipline. And by God's grace, we are growing in faithfulness to the Lord. I hope that you see this morning that being a part of the church is both an incredible privilege and an incredible responsibility. You being a part of the church is filled with importance. Being part of the family of God includes defending the faith from the world, the devil, and our own sinful desires. Even now, in in our current situation, I believe that God is working in the life of the church. I believe that He's purifying the church. So who is participating in these weekly events, these weekly rhythms, because it's something they feel obligated to do? And who is living as a member in the community of faith because here is where they find life and purpose and hope. The one who does so out of obligation won't sustain for long, but the one who comes because they found life, they will be sustained. They will be satisfied. I pray that you and I would be like that latter person 
who would commit to gather together as the people of God, that we would commit to unity, to holiness, to the universal beauty and the apostolic faith of the church, that we would long together for sound preaching and teaching, that we would enjoy the grace together as we observe the sacraments, that we would lovingly hold one another up through discipline. Students, we get to do this. We get to be a part of the body of Christ. We get to exercise and exemplify these marks of the church. What a privilege, what a, what a treasure that you and I have been given by God. Let's pray and ask him for help. Lord Jesus, we are asking for help. We confess that we cannot make ourselves united. We cannot make ourselves holy. We cannot make ourselves long for universal beauty and Catholicity. We, we can't conform ourselves purely to the teachings of the apostles. We can't rightly understand the, the Bible on our own. Without you, the, the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, they're just empty rituals. And without your, your courage and your power in our lives, we will never be brave enough to hold one another to discipline. So God, we need you. We need you to purify your church. We need you to purify us as your church. Help us to see the value of these marks that we've noticed throughout history, that we've seen in scripture. God, help us to be washed in the water of the word, sanctified so that we might be presented to you one day, holy and blameless without blemish. God, we long for that day. We pray that that day would come soon and that we would be ready by your grace and your power. God, help us in Jesus' name. Amen.